0: Now, tonight is uh, our study of the book of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 12. So Matthew 12 starts out this way. At the time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, "'Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, "'he and those who were with him, "'how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, "'which was not lawful for him to eat, "'nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? "'Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath "'the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath "'and are blameless? "'Yet I say to you that in this place "'there is one greater than the temple.'" But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So we start tonight's lesson by seeing a conflict that occurs between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, His disciples on the Saturday Sabbath, they went through the, the wheat fields and they were hungry, and as they were going, They actually picked the the wheat and they uh, ate some of it raw, I presume, and and I guess it was something they did. I know I did it with corn. I would go through fields when I was a kid, and probably all of you have done this, get a raw uh, corn cob and eat it, but this is uh, maybe a little different, but evidently they were hungry enough to eat this, but the Pharisees were critical because this amounted to work and working on the Sabbath day was prohibited, according to the Pharisees. So Jesus is going to give examples. He first gives the example of David. Now, the story of David was that he was a fugitive, and he went to the priest, and they were hungry, and they had a life-sustaining need. They, They needed to eat, and there was food stored among the priest. And for life and death issues, David helped himself to this food supply. Now, even though it was not technically correct, it did solve an emergency need. I would compare this to the same types of laws that exist in places like Alaska. You know, in Alaska, it is against the law to padlock a cabin in the woods. It's against the law. And the reason it's against the law is that you might have people there who accidentally, or because they're in some sort of, they're lost in the wilderness, they may need shelter. And you have to provide shelter for people in lost situations. And there are tons of people every year who have to be rescued. And if you have a cabin you find, uh, I ask you a question. And I, I know what I would answer. But if I am in a plane crash and I survive, and I'm in the wilderness, and there's a house, cabin, or something, and it's locked. There's no one there, and the window is there. I'm probably going to break that window, and I'm going to get in there, okay? Because, yes, I'm breaking the law of trespass, but I'm saving myself, which is the law of survival. So if you had to weigh those two laws, when they are in conflict with one another, which one are you going to err on? You're going to err on the side of survival... Because that's a greater law. You know, are, are you going to say, well, they froze to death on the front porch because of the padlock, but boy, they obeyed the trespass laws. So let, let's celebrate the fact that they, 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 they kept the trespass laws. <laughs> so God doesn't want us to be tricked by Satan, Satan is a very clever enemy. He knows how to literally take the laws of God and put them at odds with one another. Jesus knows this. The Pharisees, because they were so committed to one aspect of the law, failed to understand the greater laws. Because sometimes laws are in conflict. That's not because God is contradictory but because the world is contradictory, okay? Because God provides these laws for reasons. But you have to understand that you got to properly weigh what God wants. So in David's case, the law of survival was preeminent. But then he also says that the priest are allowed to break some of these laws as well. And because they are allowed to break some of these laws to feed themselves and take care of themselves and do other things, it is allowable. An exception is made. And there are exceptions to the rules that God sets and and obvious exceptions. And notice how he, he appeals to them and he says that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple which they considered the the most holy place on earth. They considered the temple to be a place that was of the utmost importance to their lives. But he says in verse number six that one greater than the temple is there. So if in the temple the priest can break the law in a strict sense, you got somebody here who's greater than the temple. Should he not have the right to do as he sees fit, which he ends with the verse number eight. He says, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And he quotes in verse number seven, Hosea chapter uh, six, where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, And that quote is so important because it's better for people to have mercy than to do wrong and then ask for forgiveness. It's so much better to have mercy And God wants us to be people filled with mercy. And and the the, the obvious reason why we need to have a high regard for mercy is that we all need it. We all need the mercy of God. The Pharisees thought that they were super religious people, but they were not actually merciful. And they didn't even understand the concept. And Jesus understood the concept. So that's an important point, that Jesus has this this conflict with the Pharisees. And he explains by using two examples. He also appeals to the the, the Bible, the Old Testament itself, when it said that mercy is greater than sacrifice. And and similar to what Samuel said, obedience is greater than sacrifice. Uh, And then, then, of course, he, he, he uses two references one that a greater than the temple is here and then secondly he says about himself that he is Lord even of the Sabbath here's a question who created the Sabbath day the Lord so does he not have managerial control over everything is he is he less than the Sabbath day? no he's greater than the Sabbath day he can do whatever he wants. No, they didn't know who he was and they didn't care either. Even if they did know, I don't think they cared. They were filled with the devil, I really believe. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? So they they were trying to trip Jesus up to try to get him to do some doctor's work on the Sabbath day as though that's bad, okay? And he says in verse 11, he said to them, what man is there among you who who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So he makes it clear to them that you all have made the exception in your lives. If you had a sheep that fell into a pit and you needed to get it out, you'd get it out on the Sabbath. You wouldn't let it die in the pit. You would get it out, even if it's on the Sabbath day. But humans are more important than these animals. And how much more important is it to help a human being on the Sabbath day? So he answers their question by using the examples from their own lives, which they had to agree was right. But then he uses the logic that if you do show mercy on an animal on the Sabbath day, how much more should you show mercy on a human? And uh, so then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. So he healed this man. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him because all they could see was that Jesus broke a rule. That's all they could care about. They were so committed to their rule that they weren't committed to righteousness. and That's a very dangerous thing. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. So you have this wonderful passage from the book of Isaiah, I believe it's from Isaiah 42 and from 49, and you'll notice that Jesus is fulfilling this in his life. He's going to He's gonna be an innocent man, he's not gonna harm, he's going to heal, and he's gonna be a a light really for the Gentiles themselves. He's gonna be a help to the nations. Then in verse 22, then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. Well, those are three very bad things, and they're all separate, but they're all bad. To be demon-possessed is the worst, To be blind is very bad, and to not be able to speak. So you can imagine how horrible this poor man's life was. And he healed him. So it says Jesus healed him. So that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. So he got healed and saved from this terrible, terrible uh, affliction. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, "'Could this be the Son of David?' Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, Beelzebub was a popular name that the Philistines gave to the god of demons, and it was not a good name to ever invoke, and it was bad. But in this case, they're accusing Jesus of using this demon prince, whoever this was, and to the devil's power to cast out demons who work with the devil. So here's how Jesus answered. And Jesus gives us a wonderful lesson. If you wonder about Jesus and wonder about how you can know that he was doing the right thing, it's right here. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself Is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And I I love how he says this. He's saying, Look, if you're fighting yourself, you're going to be destroying yourself and you're going to lose. You can't be divided against yourself. And if Satan is doing this casting out of Satan and destroying the work of Satan, then how in the world can Satan survive at all? It doesn't make any sense. Verse 27, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. Now, there were exorcists in those days. It was not uncommon. And in our world, in the modern scientific world, it is often believed that demon possession was a superstition of the old days. But I do not believe this. I believe demon possession was and is real. But I do think that it's not as easily seen in our modern world because it's hidden behind... Uh, clinical descriptions, so I think that a lot of clinical terminology is used to describe what is actually demon possession. Uh, Another thing that I would suggest you do your own research on is if you look at places like Haiti and other places where they've been known to have numerous examples of demon possession, you just have to see for yourself that this is not simply a mental illness or a mental condition. Now certainly it would be a mental condition of stress for somebody who was demon-possessed. So I'm not saying that there's not anything going on that's mentally detrimental, but I am telling you that demons were real and when people say, well, epilepsy used to be thought to be uh, caused by demons, well, yes, but they had a term for epilepsy and a term for demonic possession as well. So they had separate terms. And also, they had separate, separate terms for mental uh, people who were mentally incapable. They, people who were out of their head and crazy, they had words for this. If you go back to the Old Testament, you know that David pretended to be crazy when he was captured by the Philistines, so they would leave him alone. <laughs> but he wasn't crazy. He was just pretending. So they knew the difference between just being crazy and and being demon-possessed. So I think that uh, it is so true that one of the greatest lies the devil ever said was that he didn't exist, because the devil does exist, the demons do exist, and they existed in Jesus' day, and those people who were tempted to cast them out following certain rules that they, they had been given, uh, if if if. If Jesus was not allowed to do it, then how were they allowed to do it? Now in verse number 28, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's absolutely true. If if Jesus is doing God's work, then God's kingdom has come to them. And he was doing God's work. God's spirit was upon him and he was defeating Satan everywhere he went. The devil was running from him. So in this case, Jesus brings up one of my, my favorite passages of scripture in verse 29 of Matthew chapter 12. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Now this, when I first studied this as a teenager, I th- or maybe I was a little bit older, but I don't think I was. I think I had read this when I was a teenager. I think that this is a confusing verse because he's talking about somebody who's trying to take over a strong man's house. And he says, you can't take his goods until you bind the strong man because he might hurt you or do something. So, The key is, if you want to rob somebody, you've got to take care of the one protecting that house, right? So I used to think that that meant that the strong man would be God and the devil's trying to steal something, but that's not right. Jesus is actually talking about Satan's dominion and how Jesus is infiltrating Satan's dominion with his kingdom. And Jesus has to take care of the strong man who is the devil. And if he doesn't directly assault the strong man, he's not going to be able to take the goods from him. What are the goods? What are those things? Well, that's the souls, those are the souls of people. Because remember, after Adam and Eve sinned, the title deed to the souls of men were held literally by Satan. Now, God did not allow all the people who were dead to go to hell. And in fact, he kept them reserved. But the devil still had a claim on them because they sinned and they had to die. That was the rule. So Jesus, he's trying to rescue these people. He's trying to capture from the devil the souls that the devil has a claim to. And that's what this is about. So he says, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to take everything that Satan controls and get it for himself. He wants to take from the devil those poor people who are under his power and dominion. But he first has to take care of the devil. Then he will plunder his house. And that's what he's talking about here. Jesus had to fight the devil He did fight the devil, he defeats the devil, and now he has access to take every person who is willing and believing, take them from the devil. Verse 30 says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So he only says there's two camps, the gatherers or the scatterers. You're either with Jesus or you're not. If you're with him, you're trying to gather people to him, if you're not, you're scattering people. Unfortunately, that seems to be very true of many people's lives. Verse 31, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. It's, this is the famous unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, remember the phrase son of man is a phrase Jesus talked about himself. It was a a humbling phrase. It, It showed that he is part of our humanity, shares humanity with us. And so he called himself the son of man. He had to fight the devil as a human. So he calls himself the son of man. And he says, anyone who speaks a word against me, Jesus is saying, it will be forgiven him. There are so many people that take the name of Jesus in vain every single day and his name is used as a curse word nearly and and people casually deal with him. Others hate Jesus so much they they absolutely uh, say bad things about him and they criticize Christians. But Jesus says that's not unforgivable. You can repent of this. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. So that is a very serious sin. In fact, it's the worst sin that anyone can commit because you can't repent of it. So what is this sin? Now, some people have said and argued that this is the sin of unbelief because if you don't believe, you're not going to go to heaven. But I don't agree with this because first of all, there are many people who don't believe But then they repent and then they believe. So is unbelief an unpardonable sin? No, because you can change and go from an unbeliever to a believer. So I don't think that's right. What I think the unpardonable sin is, is a sin that was done with the mouth that expressed hatred for and contempt for. Both of them, not just they're not the same thing. Contempt is to treat something as nothing. And in this case, you're treating the Holy Spirit with hatred and you're saying the Holy Spirit is the devil. The Holy Spirit's the most precious gift that we have accessible to us at all. Jesus died and went to heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit was the same spirit who was around in the Old Testament in the ark of the near the ark of the covenant, in the temple, and it, before that, in the tabernacle, God's Holy Spirit is so great that He is the means to which you get saved. So, if you're cursing the Holy Spirit and blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you are literally cursing your lifeboat. You are cursing your life preserver, and you're you're like the person who's in the water and God shows, gives you the Holy Spirit to save you, and you say, well, I don't need that. Well, you're going to die, and God doesn't guarantee you're going to have more than one chance. Now, blasphemy of the Spirit was a verbal offense, but it was a very bad thing to do because you're literally accusing Jesus. No, you're accusing, well, you're accusing Jesus of using the devil's forces when Jesus is not. So you are insulting the Holy Spirit of God, and there's no way to... To repent of this. It's very bad. So do people commit the holy the, this sin today? I hope not, but some people may. And I've heard stories of people, and you can research it on your own, where people have cursed the Holy Spirit and died pretty soon thereafter because they don't get forgiven here or there. It's not a good thing to do. Don't play around with the Spirit of God. But we keep, keep going in verse 33. Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit. So he's trying to get these pretenders to reveal themselves because they pretend to be good trees but their fruit is horrible. And he's saying, I'm gonna shed light on you and you need to come out and either be a good tree with good fruit or you're going to be a bad tree with bad fruit. And then he accuses them and calls them a brood of vipers in verse 34. He says, brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak They will give account of it in the day of judgment. That's a scary thought, that every word we say, that is a wasted word. Every word we say that is not productive toward some good purpose. We'll have to give account. Why did you say it? Why did we say that? As Christians do. I think it's true of all of us. Uh, I think the reason why we as Christians will be accounted for is that God will show us how much he forgave us. (laughs) In other words, we'll learn when we go to heaven how much he forgave us, which ha- if it wasn't for his grace, we'd, we'd be pretty intimidated for sure. But he paid the price for it. But we still have to give account for it. So we'll, we'll actually see how many debts he paid for us. It's not a good thought, really. <laughs> it's not something I want to think about too much, but really we ought to think about it because... You don't live in fear if you're living honestly. (laughs) You don't live in fear if you're doing what you think is the best and you're following the Lord. But if you're not, then you have fear. So he says here in uh, verse number 37, For by your words you will be justified. By your words you will be condemned. So words are important. Why are they important? Because they reflect your heart. They reflect what's in you. When you you squeeze the orange, you get the orange juice. Squeeze the lemon, you get the lemon juice. Squeeze a human, you get what's inside them. What's inside? Do they believe or do they not? Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, "'Teacher, we want to see a sign from you.' But he answered and said to them, "'An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign.' and no sign will be given to to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what's what's that? Well, we're going to find out. Verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah Is here, So Jonah, the sign there, was that he was in the fish for three days and three nights. And, uh, of course, he came out of that situation. And some people say, well, how in the world, preacher, can you believe that a man can survive three days and three nights in the belly of a fish or in the mouth of a fish or inside a fish or a whale or whatever this creature was? But I ask you to think about this. Maybe he didn't survive it. Maybe he died and came back to life. You ever think about that? Maybe he did die, but he didn't stay dead because he had a mission and God got him out of that fish, spit him up on the shore so he could go and preach to Nineveh, a very wicked city, a bad group of people. So when people criticize the book of Jonah as not true, well... It's certainly possible to be swallowed by some of these big fish or whales. Uh, Whether he survived or not, well, in the end, he did because God took care of him. We do know that when he was inside the fish, he prayed for God's help. And God does help him eventually. But Jesus says the men of Nineveh repented and that they actually repented at the preaching of Jonah And and there's a greater than Jonah here, and that's Jesus himself. Uh, The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So we have these examples of people who were not accustomed to following God, who decided to follow God, and they were following God with an imperfect revelation. They didn't have near the revelation that this generation to whom Jesus was preaching. Jesus was greater than both Solomon and Jonah. So in verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Now, this is one of those passages that's difficult to understand. But remember, who's he talking about? That wicked generation. So it's like this. They thought they had their lives perfectly in order they had a their temple they had a well established religion they had these fancy clothes they wore they they received all kinds of respect they were at peace with the romans who were ruling over them they were living well and prosperous in prosperous conditions and so they thought everything was there but what was actually happening was they they did not solve their problem and fill their house with god and when they didn't fill their, their house with God, the wicked spirits who had been uh, torturing the Jewish people for years, the wicked spirit says, Hey, the house is empty. Let's go back. And it gets worse for them. And so he gets seven others. And the last state is worse than the first. So the people of Israel said, we don't have a temple that's worthwhile, we need a new temple, and they rebuilt it. They thought they had everything going well, and God prepared that whole situation for the coming of the Messiah, but they rejected him. And so then God says, well, their house is left empty, so the the demons come in, and they got worse, and they do. They end up dying because of this. So while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So. Here, Jesus rejects favoring his family physically, those kin to him, over others who are spiritually devoted to him. Now, he's not saying his mother is bad. He loves his mother, don't get me wrong. But he's trying to make a point because some of the people over the years have almost deified Mary, the mother of Jesus, and almost made an idol out of her. We know this is the case. How many pictures and portraits of Mother Mary have there been? And and she deserves respect and praise. And the Bible itself says she will be highly praised. So I'm not taking any way, anything away from Mary. We respect her and thank God for her. But she would tell you that she's not God and she doesn't want to be worshiped. And Jesus is trying to say, just because I had relatives doesn't mean that I treat them better than you. We're all privileged to be a part of his family intimately if we do his will and we follow him. So we're all part of God's family. And I think that's a wonderful thought that Jesus literally gives you and me the chance to follow him and to obey uh, his commands.